today, we'll be looking at John 1, 6 to 13. I've titled this, The Light of the World and the Children of God. It's a short introductory outline. We'll see in chapter 1, verse uh, verses 6 through 8, introducing John, not the author of the book, but John the Baptist. And we'll see that he is the witness and he is not the light. The author makes that very clear. Verse 9 through 11, we'll see the true light in the world. He's not received by his own. And then verse 12 and 13, we'll see the children of God. 12 and 13 are just ah, fascinating verses to me because it shows human responsibility in verse 12. And then it shows divine sovereignty in verse 13. Uh, What we're going to find out is how in the world could sinners like us ever become children of God. We are children of God. Perhaps in some ways, we are the offspring of God. All humanity is the offspring of God. But who gets to be his children? Gets to be part of the covenant family of God. And why in the world would he ever choose us? Uh, Phillips Brooks talked a little bit about this in a song that he wrote. He was an Episcopal clergyman. He visited Bethlehem in 1865. And he wrote a song, you perhaps you've heard, called O Little Town of Bethlehem. He wrote it three years after visiting. One of the verses reads like this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. So how in the world, not only does God become man and is born of a virgin, but how are we born of God? Uh, Phillips Brooks was, an, as I said, Episcopal clergyman. There was one negative. He was a uh, he was a preacher in Philadelphia. And as you may know, the Cowboys are playing the Eagles tonight. So, oh well. Here we go. Let's take a look. Chapter 1. When we read verse 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Here we have, once again, the gospel was written by the Holy Spirit through the pen of John the Apostle, but now John is speaking of another John, John the Baptizer. Um, he was sent by God. His name means God is gracious. And as you take a look in the book of Luke, and we'll see this in John chapter three, we'll read more about John. Um, He was a cousin of Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus by, I guess, by human standards. Um, But Jesus was eternal. So that's kind of funny the way that works. Uh, John the Baptist fulfilled Malachi chapter three, verse one. God says, behold, I am going to send my messenger. And that is the forerunner of Jesus. And we'll see in just a moment what he does. But it's interesting. John the Baptist is the only recorded person in history that was filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. It's fascinating. So I guess in a case like that, since he was actually born a believer, I would perform an infant baptism if that were the case. But (laughs) continuing on, he came as a witness. A witness is, you'll see this is a major theme in John. It's used 33 times, this word witness. 
whereas it's only used once in Matthew and Luke and not at all in Mark, the Greek word for witness is martyria. Um, If we were to transliterate that into the English, which is what is done, it's the word martyr. And you might think martyr. Martyr is just someone who dies for their faith. No, no, no. The original Greek, Koine Greek, it's a witness. But there were so witness, there are so many witnesses of Jesus Christ that died for their faith. It just kind of became the uh, terminology used to describe someone who died for their faith. It's a witness. It's a martyria. Well, John is a witness. And notice what he's witnessing of. He's uh, to bear witness about the light. Now think about this a moment. Is there a need to bear witness about the God of the universe coming to the earth? I mean, Jesus says in John 5, 34, that he doesn't need testimony from men. So what is John's role? Well, he doesn't want to, he's not there to bear witness for Christ, but to bear witness to us that the light of God has come to the world. I love the way uh, A.W. Pink, one of the commentators, uh, describes this. Think about this for a moment. When the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones that are unconscious of the fact that the sun is shining? Who needs to be told that? The blind. How tragic then when we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. You don't see the light of God. Of course not. Note this, that all might believe through him. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but suffice it for this. Since the time of the Reformation, Christian theologians, they view belief or faith as consisting of three elements. Now, before I tell you those three elements, we believe firmly here, according to the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through Faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man should boast. So no one conjures up a faith in God. It's a gift of God. But when it is given by God, this concept of faith or belief, it, it contains three elements, uh, just the term itself. And the Latin phrases or terms are used here. The first one is notitia. It's knowledge. Uh, It's a knowledge, the facts, who God is, according to the Bible, what sin is, what Christ did on the cross. Question, if if you have an understanding of what those facts are, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Just by having knowledge of the facts. No, of course not. Unbelievers have a knowledge of Christianity. They don't believe in them. Well, that's the second step, and that is the the Latin word ascensus, meaning ascent, When a person assents to something, they accept these things are true with confidence that Christ really was fully God, fully man. I am fully lost without Christ and I have to come to him. So that's, you're accepting those things as true. Does that make a believer? No, it doesn't. And now beware because I'm talking to some people in this very congregation that think that a believer is one that holds to the facts and he believes them to be true. That's not enough. It's, we come to our third Latin term, fiducia. Uh, you're familiar, some of you that are involved in banking industry or finances, a fiduciary. A fiduciary is a person or a corporation that, that uh, acts on one's behalf. Why do they do that? Because they're trustworthy. And that's what the word fiducia means. It means trust. 
It means you come to the place that you are trusting personally in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. It's very different than just the facts and just assenting that these things are true. You're actually trusting alone in Christ Jesus. Um, One of the commentators quotes an, an African lady who had given testimony to her salvation in a meeting. She stood up and she said, I had heard of the gospel by the hearing of the ear, but one day it went in and sat down in my heart. It's very descript. I think that's, that's what happens when a person becomes a believer. It comes in and it sits down on her heart. So that's what belief is. We'll talk more about that as we continue on. Note what it says about John. He was not the light. Now that's interesting to me. Is there reason to make that clarity? It's almost like he's saying, here's the light. Here. Oh, and John's not it. Why would they believe that John is the light? There's nothing in the Greek that would even confer that he was the light. Why is there a need to clarify? Well, it's interesting. When you take a look in Acts 18 and 19, we see Paul comes to Ephesus and he meets certain people that have received John's baptism, but they're not believers. Uh, He meets a guy named Apollos who had John's baptism. He understood John's baptism, but he did not understand Jesus. And so what happens, these people seem to have some understanding of repentance I should be sorrowful for my sin and turn from my sin. But it was never a point that you're embracing Jesus for your salvation. Not only that, but there was a, a, a belief, a false religion back at that time called Mandaism. And Mandaism revered ancient Old Testament characters, like real ancient, like Adam and Abel and Seth. And they especially liked John. As a matter of fact, they came to be called the Christians of St. John but that's not possible. Why? They thought Jesus was a false prophet. And uh, you can't believe Jesus is a false prophet and be a believer. So maybe that's what John is dealing with at that time. He's like, hey, just to be clear, John is not the light. And for us ourselves, I think there's a warning. Beware of giving excessive honor to those who bear witness of the light instead of the light. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? You'll only listen to one particular pastor out there or one theologian that you really like. You're like, everybody else, no, I quote this one. This is the one. I would say beware of that. George Whitfield, that 17th, uh, 1700s evangelist, said this about his name, and he was famous. He says, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me. If that by... If by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted, let us look above names and parties. Let Jesus be our all in all so that he is preached. I care not who is uppermost. I know my place, even to be the servant of all. Now, catch the nuance in what I'm saying. I'm not saying you shouldn't give honor to whom honor is due. And certain um, people out there have, have had tremendous impacts in your life. You thank the Lord for them. But I would caution you about being of somebody. I mean, there's dangers in that. Number one, no one is perfect. And and number two, uh, we all have feet of clay. And if you're like me and you you held to somebody's teaching and that's the guy, and then you see his feet of clay, you go, oof, I don't like him anymore. Let's switch to somebody else. Some of you have done that. 
Don't do that. You want to focus on Christ. 1 Corinthians warns about being of Paul or of Apollos or of Cephas. If you're a Christian, you are of Christ. Amen? Verse 9. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. As I told you all last week, light, it means uh, divine knowledge or salvation. But here it's referring to a person. The true light, that means that he's not counterfeit. This is the one true light. Jesus can say in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. So here in the person of Jesus Christ, as one commentator states, you have the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. So some of you, when you read that verse nine, though, you, you scratch your head when it comes to a point where it says, which gives light to everyone. When Jesus came, did he give light to everyone? Well, there's three options on how to understand this, and I will tell you right off the bat, I don't know which is right, but I like the third one in particular. First option would be that it's referring to general revelation. Uh, When Jesus came, he, in some sense, illuminated every man. Uh, Not enough to save, but enough to condemn. Christ, God has come to the world, first coming, It's enough to condemn, to give light to the world. But I don't don't think that's what he means here. Augustine, in the fourth century, he looked at, uh, he tried to explain it like this. It's like having one school teacher in an entire city. He is said to be the teacher of all, though not all people go to the school. So he gives light, quote unquote, to everyone, meaning to everyone who receive it. He, he may be right. That's a pretty good understanding. Um, I like D.A. Carson, actually, who came up with this just several years back. He studied the text, and he said, you know, the Greek verb means to give light, to make something visible. Thus, light is not referring to so much inner illumination, but outer, light coming upon you. So when light comes upon the world through the Son of God's incarnation, quote, It shines on every man and it divides the race. He forces a distinction to take place. So remember the angels, right? In Luke 2, they show up, one, and then all of them, not all of them, but many, myriads upon myriads, and they're singing to these shepherds that are scared to death, it seems. And they will say, peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. Some people said, well, peace on earth to men. Well, that's the King James, but really when you look at the text a little deeper in the Greek, it's very clear. Peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. It's not peace on earth to all men, because if it is, it hasn't worked so well for the last 2,000 years. It's only to those who are come to Christ, who come to the light, that are not fleeing from the light. It reminds me of a cold, cold winter day when I was driving back late and it was, I'm from this part of Texas and so we're not used to zero degrees weather and I have thinner blood. And so we were living in northeastern Oklahoma and I was driving home in the pickup one night and it was zero degrees and uh, right in front of my lights as I get turned off into the uh, dirt road, I see three tiny Great Dane puppies and they've been abandoned. This, is, this is happens often. People take their dog out to the country and they think, well, he'll be fine. 
dogs, they're actually typically not fine, even uh, Great Danes, because these were puppies, and they came running towards the pickup, running towards the light. Why? Because they're puppies and they're dogs. Now, suppose they were three coyote puppies that were in front. Would they have come running to the light? No, they don't. That's not what they do. They're wild. They don't like light. They like darkness. And so that's what we have here, a picture, is that D.A. Carson was saying is that when the light came to the world, it divides the nations. Jesus makes it clear, I did not come to bring peace to the earth. I came to bring a sword to divide a man against his his father, and he goes through all the different family analogies. Some of you are in here, and your families are divided. Don't think somehow that, what have I done? I'm a Christian, but they're not. What a failure. No, Jesus predicts this. This is the way it often is in families. I'll continue on. Verse nine, he says, he was coming into the world. I told you last week, there's a couple of, actually there's several terms you need to keep in the back of your mind when you're reading John. Uh, Themes of light and darkness are very important. Uh, Themes of uh, believe. Another one would be witness. And I'll give you one more here, and that is cosmos, meaning the world. It's the first time it's mentioned here in John. It's an important theme in John. And so when you see it, it means one of three definitions. Um, first one is the world of creation, the universe. And that's, that's more neutral. It is neutral. It's, very, it's not common in John. The one that's very common is the second one, the world of humanity. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world the world of humanity. And then the third one, sometimes what you'll see in the New Testament is the world of sin and rebellion. That is Satan's evil system. Uh, In John 12, 31, Satan is called the ruler of the world, of this world. Not meaning the world of humanity, but the world of fallen uh, sin and rebellion. Let's continue on. Verse 10 and 11 He, meaning Christ, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How sad. The one who made the world was now coming into it, yet his own creation did not recognize him as the creator. So when it says he came to his own, it's interesting, um, it's he came to his own. It could mean things. It could mean came to his own property. Here, we would say it means people, and that fits the context. But what people in particular? He came to the Jewish race. He came to the Jews. Uh, Jews have been, throughout the history since uh, Abraham, the receivers of God's revelation until the time where the church would open up to the Gentiles It's fascinating to think about that God's revelation did not come to the English. My apologies to any Englands, Englands, Englishmen here. Uh, Nigerians, my apologies. Chinese, Indians, get this, not even Venezuelans got the revelation of God. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) they look so sad. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Listen, he came to the Jews it's something important to think. And there is a rise of anti-Semitism that is taking place bona fide throughout our country and the world. Note this, Jesus, not was, Jesus is a Jew. He's a Jew. 
the God of the universe, that's his ethnicity. He doesn't apologize for that, by the way. Neither should we. So when we see in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first, then also to the Greek, we should remember that. We are uh, friends of the Jews. My Savior is a Jew. Now, be careful. I'm not saying that we back, uh, we support everything that every Jewish person does out there, and we certainly long to win them to Christ. They will not go to heaven apart from Jesus. But let's just be clear about that, is that he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. And by the way, if he had to come to my kin, which were Scots or Irish or a combination of all the above, like you mutts out there, um, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have received him either. It's not just a Jewish thing. The Gentiles were just as lost. His own people did not receive him. It says in Isaiah chapter one verse three, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Why didn't they receive him? Well, many reasons why. And what it says to receive, it means to accept him, to welcome him. Well, the reason why is the Jews, in particular, they wanted a political Messiah. Looking from the human standpoint, that's why they didn't. They wanted a political Messiah to kick out the Romans. And yet they failed to see their real need to be saved from sin and death. Because even if Jesus came as a political Messiah, and they did get rid of the Romans, guess what people would still deal with? Sin and death. And that's our real problem. And that's not just the problem of the first century Jews, but also the 21st century people on the earth. Another commentator notes, instead of welcoming the heavenly visitant, they drove him from their door and even banished him from the earth. Who would have supposed that a people whose believing ancestors had been eagerly awaiting the appearance of the Messiah for long ages past would have rejected him when he came among them? Once again, we would have done the same things. Our ancestors would have done the same things. Verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Once again, I go back to my beginning premise. It seems it is impossible for sons of men to become children of God. It's just impossible when you think about it from God's perspective. Why? I'm looking at a bunch of sinners out here, and I'm looking at my mirror as a bunch of as one big sinner. It's impossible. God says, be perfect. Right? Jesus says, be perfect, for your heavenly father is perfect. Well, just do it. Well, the problem is, is that we are not only sinners by birth original sin that's flowing from our veins from Adam, we're also sinners by choice too. We do things wrong all the time. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that's displeasing to the Lord. We are big sinners. And we cannot be perfect in God's sight. And only perfect people go to heaven. And the reason why, on top of many things else, is we're not born again. Uh, Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is meeting with him at night. We'll be covering that in John 3 here soon. And Nicodemus looks at Jesus and says, in essence, there's no, one, there's no way you could do these, uh, these miraculous things if God were not with him. And Jesus, it's almost like he 
grabs something out of the air and he doesn't really deal with anything that Nicodemus is saying. He just looks straight at him and says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Boy, talk about a way not to influence friends. He shuts him down right there. By the way, that phrase born again also can just as easily be translated, unless you are born from above, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the bad news, Nicodemus. You're gonna go to hell because you're not born again. Now, we know the rest of the story, but let's just embrace the sadness of it. Um, Yeah, it's true. We cannot enter God's presence. He's perfect, he's holy. How in the world should we ever think that we could come to God and say, can you just let me off the hook? I'm sorry, can we move on here? No, but note the good news here. Verse 12, but to all who who have received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of you perhaps come from a Roman Catholic background. And so when you think of receiving him, you might be thinking of like receiving communion or mass. That's not what John is referring to here. He's explaining it clearly. To all who received him, who believe in his name. Those who believe in his name. That means in essence, stop relying on your good works, your baptism, any good things that you've done because the Bible says your good deeds are nothing more than filthy rags. So stop relying on them, but instead you trust. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's pisteo ace, believe in. The word pisteo is believe, and it's used 98 times in John. And so he's, he's not saying you just simply believe in the facts about Jesus. He's saying believe in him. When I witness to others, sometimes I've used uh, this, and this is not new with me. Um, Do you believe in George Washington? Well, a loyal American was, well, sure, I believe in George Washington. But do you believe in him, like that somehow he's going to take care of you and and, and provide for your means and, and die on the cross for you? No, of course not. You believe historically that he existed. But Jesus Christ is, is vastly different. You're actually trusting in him alone for your salvation. So that everything he stands for, if you're a Christian, you stand for. Or you should. Everything that he stands against, you stand against. Because you're a Christian. So you are in Christ. As a matter of fact, that is Paul's favorite terminology to use for Christians. I use the word believer a lot. It's used a few times, many times. Saints is another term, which means holy one. Actually, the word Christian is only used about three times in the New Testament, but that kind of be, that was kind of the name that caught on. But what is Paul's favorite terminology to refer to those who have been born of God? They are in Christ, in Christ, and Christ is in you. So to all these who have believed, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, so, Just to be clear, it's more like granting a status to become children of God, not somehow that we had the choice to be born again. No one chooses to be born again. Why? Because that's God's prerogative. That's that's not ours. I can't force something that I don't have the ability to control. Uh, Note this. He also says he gave the right to become children of God. The root word there to become is from the word begotten, to give birth. In John 1, 14, we'll see that the word became flesh. He was born into the world. 
And so note this, that all who believe, who come to a place in their life that are trusting Christ alone, he gives the right to become children of God. You know a phrase that John never uses? He never uses the terminology sons of God. And there's nothing wrong with that terminology because other authors do use it, but John won't, he won't use it. Why? Well, because the spirit, I think, made it very clear to him, it was important for him that there would be no confusion over the son of God. You see, I am a son of God by faith alone in Christ alone, but I'm not the son of God. If I get up front and I start calling myself that, declaring myself that, it's time to leave. Take me out as well for that matter. Note this, what they were not born of. Now, this is really kind of the, uh, this is the hitch, if you will, of the passage. He's pointing out what did not happen to you. And some of us in our theology, well, it needs to be kind of uh, shaped here if if it never occurred to you before. Number one, you were not born of blood. In the Greek, it says you were not born of bloods. It uses it in the plural. Why plural? Well, it could be because he's implying the parents of a person. Uh, Just because your mom and dad are believers does not mean you're a believer. Regeneration, as one person noted, does not run in the veins. Now be careful because I'm looking at some of you kids right now. And you know what I'm thinking. Well, my parents are believers. So I guess I am too. They're Christians. I go to church equals I'm a believer. No, actually that's not the case. You have to personally come to the place of trusting Christ alone for your salvation. Your parents will not stand in the judgment for you one day. Each of us will stand alone. So it could mean also this concept of not born of blood. Remember what the Hebrews or the Jews would say the first time of the first century? They would look at Jesus and said, we are children of Abraham, meaning we're children of God. And Jesus would say, I can what? I can take these rocks right here, okay? No, no, no. They may have said, we are of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, it's in our loins. Well, remember, Esau is Abraham's grandson. How does the Bible describe him? Sexually immoral and unholy, according to Hebrews 12. He's a wicked man, and he's Abraham's grandson. It doesn't run. Ladies and gentlemen, your salvation does not run in the veins, you don't, you don't have kids that are believers because you're a believer. And if you're a child today, it's not because your grandpa was a pastor or something to that effect. It's not in the blood. Notice where your birth does not also come from, nor of the will of the flesh. Now, some of you think flesh, oh, that's bad, meaning perhaps sexual desire. And yet, it's interesting, John never uses that phrase uh, regarding that sin, uh, remember what he says in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. So obviously he's not talking about sexual sin here. He's talking about the word became flesh, meaning it, it was human, human. So John seems to be communicating here that you're not born of God because you desire it, that it's not the will of the flesh. You cannot be born again because you want it to happen. You can't ever look up to God and say, make me be born again. No, because to be born again, 
Remember what Nicodemus says, do I have to go back in my mother's womb? He doesn't understand. And Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You have to be born of the Spirit because only then does God take out the heart of stone, according to Ezekiel, and he puts in the heart of flesh that breathes and, 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 and it listens to God and it follows him. You see, at the end of the day, when I say it needs to be born again, you need to have a different nature and you can't make that yourself. Let me give you an example. Uh, I'm not too much of a horseman. I've, I've traveled a little bit on them. Uh, but if I were to put a, uh, oh, a top sirloin in front of a horse and put a bale of hay right next to each other, what does he choose? You better hope he chooses the hay, okay? I can't imagine anything scarier than a man-eating horse. He will outrun you and eat you. But we don't worry about that. Why? They're not carnivores. They're herbivores. That's their nature. They're always going to choose the hay. For us, since we have been born in sin, we will always choose sin. We will always choose darkness. We run from the light. We don't want the light of Jesus Christ. That's just who we are. The Bible says we are dead in our transgressions and sins. So if I'm not born again by, oh, my parents being born again or being related to Abraham, if I'm not, if I'm not born again by the will of the flesh, like I choose to be born again. Well, what about the third option? Nor of the will of man, which is similar to that last phrase. It could, it could be translated, nor the will of a husband, because the word man and husband are the same terms used in the Koine Greek. So what I think he's saying, it's not a husband's decision. So to put it like this, it's not like a husband looks over at his wife and says, let's, let's uh, get married and let's have relations and let's have a child. And that child will be born of God. So by our actions, we can make it happen. No. That somehow you're sitting today and you say, well, Jeff Brown, he teaches in my church. He teaches the gospel, at least I hope I am. Therefore, I'm born again. No, my actions don't affect you. Your parents' actions don't affect you to be born again. So I know I'm painting a very dark picture, and I hope I am, because the reality of it is pretty amazing. But let me paint it a little darker. So just to be clear, you're not born again, number one, because of your blood. It doesn't matter who you're related to. Nothing to do with you, who you're related to. Number two, you're not born of your flesh. That means you don't have this intense desire to be born again, so you'll be born again. And number three, you're not born again because of the will of man, meaning the actions of another for you to be born again. It doesn't happen. So how am I born again? Oh, here we go. You're born of God. You're born of God. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. John 3.8, as I already mentioned, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You can't tell where it's coming from, where it is going. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. You got five men sitting on the top of a hill. They've been working all day. It's in the evening. They're sweaty. It's 
August in Texas, and the wind blows, and three of them feel this wind, and oh, that feels amazing. There's a couple of others that were further over, and they said, I didn't feel a thing. That's the Spirit. Some of you are hearing what I say today, and you go, I love that. Praise Jesus. I didn't save myself. Others are thinking, when will he be done? So the question is, and some of us may have asked this, why don't all believe in Jesus Christ? That's a bad question. The question is this, why does anyone believe in Jesus Christ if we are in darkness, which is what we are born in? If the, I tell you the truth, if the Lord had not raised me from the dead, if I were not born from above or born again, I would not believe today, folks. Romans 9, 16, it says, it, is, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the idea is that God looked down the corridors of time and he saw that none would believe. They're all in darkness. And in his kindness and his mercy, he chose a, a myriads upon myriads that he would choose, that he would save. Now, think about this for a moment, especially if there's a, some issue perhaps in your mind. Think about your physical birth for a moment, can we? Do you remember uh, choosing to be born? Remember that? Do you remember what date you chose to be born? Do you remember when you chose uh, what state to be born in? What city? By God's grace, some of you were born in this beloved state. God bless you. What year? What year did you choose to be born in? Or perhaps what century? Or what sex you chose to be? You might choose your race or ethnicity. Who your parents would be. You see, you had no choice in any of these matters. You still don't. These are God's choices. And he does it out of mercy. Keep in mind, this is God's mercy. Incredible mercy. I heard a pastor say one time, everything above the lake of fire is grace. And we should not forget it. Uh, one of the commentators named Stephen Cole brings this question up. Do we first believe and then are born again? Or are we born again and then we believe? Well, he says they both happen at the same instant. And so it's really a question of logical, not chronological order. The clearest verse for answering the question is 1 John 5, 1, which literally is translated, whoever believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been born. Um, that is the perfect tense, has, past perfect tense, has been born of God. In other words, believing in Christ is evidence that God has given you new life through the new birth. Another commentator named J.C. Ryle, of the, he, was a, he was a friend of Spurgeon's in the 1900s. He says, where there is faith, there is always new birth. And where there is no faith, there is no new birth. So if you're a little confused today, then I've done my work. We're talking mystery at this point. Please, please note this. We're talking mystery. Oftentimes what we try to do is, is get behind the curtain. We want to see what the wizard is doing. No, God will not show his hand. We do know this is that in his divine sovereignty, God saves whom he will save. And 
in our human responsibility, we are responsible to believe, period. And at this point, you go, but yeah, that doesn't, they don't, oh, well, you want to connect those dots, don't do it. Don't do it, because you'll fall into terrible heresy. I've got enough examples throughout history. And if you're really struggling with this, then my encouragement to you is read Romans 9, 10, and 11 before you email me this week. It really is important to read that. If you ever could get cocky in your salvation, like, why don't others believe this? I just don't, don't know. You don't understand salvation. Your role in salvation was being lost and being dead. Congratulations, you did it well. But note this, and just to be clear, we are still responsible. I don't know how that works out fully. I don't know how that works out at all, but it's true. But note this, if the Lord is the only one who can save us, we are unable, We're, we, but, our, more, but our, our inability or inability is moral inability, not so much a physical inability. Let me explain. Don't think this picture of coming to God is like a small innocent child in a wheelchair who can't walk, but really wants to reach out the hand of Jesus and he keeps calling for her, but she can't walk. That's not the picture of salvation. That's not the picture of scriptures at all. No, here's your picture. You've got a rapist, a murderer, wickedest person who ever lived on death row. And it's not as much a matter of that he cannot walk out of his jail cell when Jesus calls him. He will not walk out. God, you can't make me. It's important to note that because when it says we are dead in our transgressions and sins, it's really a moral issue. It's not a physical issue, although the moral does become physical because of our own wickedness. Trust me, there's no one who's ever wanted to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior who do not come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Why? Because darkness hates light. And those that are of God come to him. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's just vitally important for us to realize that no one wants the Lord as his Savior. No one seeks after God. Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. So can I give you some hope as we close? How do you find out if you are one of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world? How do you find out? Can you, like, as Spurgeon say, did you just kind of lift up somebody's Shirt, and you could see, you know, E for elect here. No, no, no. Our job is to preach the gospel to all of creation. Um, and I would tell you this. If you want to find out today if you're one of God's chosen, all, you, all I'm asking you to do is believe. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Turning from your sin as your master and trusting Jesus alone for your salvation. If you do that, you know that you are one of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. He has borne you again. Rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this tough teaching. It is true, but Father, it's, it's hard because we as humans, we like to get our mind around these things and you're not allowing us to. And yet, Father, lest we somehow think that you are beholden to us, you are beholden to no man. You in your grace and your kindness has, have given many, millions upon millions, perhaps even billions upon billions to come to know your son, Jesus Christ, 
Lord, you don't owe us that. You don't owe us anything except for eternal damnation due to our sin. And we pray instead that you would just grant salvation to many who believe. And for those here that, that do believe but don't fully understand these concepts, I pray that you would help them to realize that ultimately the Lord is in charge of this. You know all things. You know our limitations. Help us not to somehow try to figure it out. But at the end of the day, Father, we want to get to the point that we are just trusting him. I believe in order that I may understand. It's your son's name we pray it. Amen.